You are listening to National Security Law Today. I'm Elisa Poteet, and welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Tonight's podcast is dedicated to all the women serving in national security jobs whose only guide was the insufferable dress for success, and to the women launching out of law school and leaving law firms for the grit and challenge of dealing with the national security apparatus of the United States. And all those terrific folks at the intelligence community who now celebrate Pride Week with their LGBT peers. This podcast is for you, but it's also for the good men who have hired women and who will be making decisions about their futures, who want to be fair to these women. I'll quote my own father here, who was a CIA scientist. Women promote integrity and national security. Thanks, Dad. This podcast is also for you. My guest tonight is Stacey Vanek-Smith, author of the new book, Machiavelli for Women. You're going to recognize Stacey's voice from her work on NPR, on Marketplace, and The Indicator from Planet Money. If you're a woman, you need to read this book. And if you're a man who wants to treat his female workforce and colleagues fairly and without bias, you need to read this book. Stacy, I'm so <laughs> glad you're here tonight. What, what an introduction. Thank book. you. Machiavelli, he was a dude living in times when women had no status. No, it's true. This has come up a lot of times. Like, really, does this is this what the women's movement needs is, is like a, a white European guy telling us what to do? It's a very fair question. Well, I'll tell you where the book came from and how Machiavelli got attached. So the book came from, as you said, I'm a reporter at NPR. I've been a reporter at NPR for almost 20 years and always covering business and economics. And when you're a reporter covering that same beat for all those years, there are just stories that come up like again and again, right? And the pay gap, the gender pay gap, is just one of those stories that comes up every year, often in March. We call it the yawning gender, the yawning gap. Yes, yes. Equal pay stories. So I've done about a million of them. And I was doing like another one. And, you know, it's a topic that I'm always interested in, of course. But I was talking to this really amazing economist, Dr. Francine Blau, and she's done all kinds of really cool research into those statistics and kind of diving down into like the race, gender pay gap and different professions and everything. She really knows her stuff. And she just sort of tossed off this one sentence when we were talking. She was like, well... You know, and the pay gap is it, women earn about – it's gotten a little bit better, but about $0.80 cents, uh, for every dollar a man earns. For black women, it's about $0.63. Cents. For Hispanic women, it's about $0.55. Cents. And for indigenous women, it's about $0.55. Cents. So that is the pay gap. And she said to me, well, you know, these numbers haven't really moved in 20 years. And I was like, they what? Because, you know, I've been reporting on all these things, including, by the way, that like there are now more women than men in law school. There are, are, I think, are almost 50-50 split in med school. I mean, there's been enormous change in our economy. I mean, that was my whole career, 20 years, more than my whole career. And she was like, oh, yeah, well, they really haven't changed in 10. Those numbers haven't moved. And I was like, there hasn't been any progress? Because I have seen so much change and transformation in our economy as a whole, in the role of women, all of it. You know, I mean, the tech sector explode. I mean, so much change and transformation. And those numbers have just been like frozen. And that, I think, is what was sort of mulling around in my head. That was what kind of got me to write the book. And how did we get back to 
a an ancient, really, Machiavelli, who's, you know, I think of The Prince as something that was mandatory reading in maybe early high school, maybe even junior <laughs> high school, depending <laughs> upon where you went to school. Yes. Um, but, you know, he, I mean, I, you know, I thought he must have been this powerful, brilliant guy who really had a lot of influence. But that's not really the case. Yes, yes. The Machiavelli idea came from my editor, Karen Marcus. I was sort of talking through these ideas with her, and I felt like there was, I just, I, I couldn't, it was that data kept bugging me. It was like rattling around in my brain. And my editor said, you know, it's almost like women need Machiavelli. And for some reason, that comment also started to knock around in my head with all these numbers. And like you, I had read Machiavelli in college. I really hated, hated Machiavelli. I just thought he was like so power hungry and basic and, you know, just kind of like I have no interest in crushing people or forcing people to my will. It, it seemed like very much not anything I was interested in. But I reread it because she mentioned it and I was like, oh, I'll give it a read. And it's very short. It's only like 35, 40, I mean, it's like 40 pages. You can read it in one sitting. As soon as I started reading it, I was like transfixed. The premise of the book, basically, it's advice to a prince. But Machiavelli says that there are two kinds of princes, those who inherit their land and those who have conquered, are in a new territory that they have just conquered. And he said for the you know, the existing prince, the inheriting prince, it's pretty easy. Life is pretty easy. Everyone kind of expects that he's going to be there. He's the status quo. Everybody's kind of going about their business. But he said for the, the conquering prince, it's very difficult. Everybody's questioning why they're there. Why is this person in power? Who even are they? Why am I not in power? And there are all these challenges. And I was like, that is women in the workplace. This is the issue. And he said difficulties abound for this other kind of prince because this prince is new to power. Everybody's questioning and challenging and they are not the status quo. And that captivated me. And that that's why I went with Machiavelli. And I think that's an apt analogy. You are sort of arriving in a new place and attempting to exert control where it really hasn't been done before or somebody had inherited that spot previously. So I think that's spot on. But And I don't want to freak anyone out here, but you just mentioned something, which is, you know, women are entering law school and medical school in higher numbers. And you would expect that gender, once they got into the workforce, would cease really being an issue. And I think that this also causes people to presume that the world for women is going to be a meritocracy and that life is fair out there as women understand it. But it really isn't, right? That's right. I mean, that's what the data shows us. And you're absolutely right. There are now more women than men going to law school, but fewer than 20 percent of law partners are women. Law is, if anything, a little more equal than most of the sort of professions that require more education. It's even worse in medicine and, and engineering and things like that. And what you see is all of these women get the degree and go into the field, and then something happens, and a lot of women you know, stay in the field but just aren't rising up the ranks like their male colleagues are. So part of this, let me just say, one of the things that really struck me in the book is a lot of women aren't raised to relish conflict. And one of the things that you point out repeatedly in the book is that there is a way that men approach negotiation where it's not personal and they take a different approach. And I'm wondering if you could just say sort of briefly what it is about that that women could embrace 
And what's the big takeaway about asking for what you want, negotiating, and those sorts of interactions, which women aren't necessarily taught? This was a really fun part of the book for me to research because there's a real lot of really interesting research and work being done right now around negotiation. People are just very interested in it and fascinated by it. There's a lot of behavioral stuff in there and everything. And also, I've never liked negotiating. I've never been any good at it. Just not. I don't enjoy it. It gives me enormous anxiety. And I'd always like felt quite ashamed about that. I mean, I report on business and economics. You know, I feel like I know all these numbers. Like I was telling you, I just reported these stories over and over again. And I felt ashamed that I couldn't kind of step up, you know, that I wasn't better at negotiating. I would find out, as has happened to me many times, that, you know, male colleagues who had less experience or equivalent of experience were earning way more money than I was. And I would feel terrible about it. And then I started looking at the research and I was actually enormously relieved because as it turns out, men and women are perceived very differently when they ask for more. Women know this on one level, that asking for more is just a little bit trickier if you're a woman because of preconceived notions and unconscious biases. The reaction you're going to get is just different. So men and women, when they ask for more, the man, even if he doesn't get what he wants, because even men most of the time will not get what they're asking for in a negotiation, even if they don't get what they're asking for, they'll walk away and most often the perception will be like, you know, good for him. He's like he's trying to get where he's going. Like I, good for him for shooting a shot. The reaction when women ask for more is very different. It can be quite negative. And in fact, research has found that if a woman asks for more money in a negotiation, she is automatically considered less desirable to work with. No matter how she asks, it's not a question of asking in a certain way. It's just that there is this feeling of like, who does she think she is? There is not that sense of, oh, good for her, you know, good for her for asking. The reaction is just a little bit different. And this, by the way, is a reaction from men and women. It's just our perceptions around how different people should behave is really affecting our reactions to people asking. In fact, there's a really brilliant study, I thought, by Dr. Cecilia Ridgway, where she had a male actor and a female actor read the same script as if they were applying for a job. And they were talking about their own qualifications. And then she asked people to react to the, you know, she taped a male actor and a female actor reading the same script. That She's like, oh, they loved the guy. They thought he seemed like so fun and confident and inspiring. They thought he may had really great leadership qualities. She's like the woman, like nobody wanted to touch with a 10-foot pole. They thought she would be difficult and like abrasive. And she was like, it was so striking. So approaching negotiation, you just have to approach it a little differently. This doesn't mean you shouldn't negotiate as a woman. It just means that that it is trickier. And I think knowing that was a big relief for me. It is trickier. And just it's a it's a good idea to think a little bit carefully about how you approach it and maybe not take all of the advice that you see in a lot of negotiation books, which tend to be geared towards men. So I I love that you brought this up in the book, but I want to be clear to our listeners. You don't just bring up this stuff because, you know, I have a I have a philosophy, if you will, which is if you're going to raise problems, also raise potential solutions. And what I really loved about this book is it wasn't just, you know, a litany of all of the horrible barriers that women face to rising in the workforce. I mean, you had pretty concrete solutions and suggestions for how they might approach things like negotiations differently, like salary requests, 
like job requests. And I don't know if you're willing to part with a little bit of that in this podcast. But oh, sure. I really appreciated that part of the book. And I, I think it distinguishes it from a lot of the other books that are out there. Well, I was determined to offer solutions because and my editor was very good about pushing me on this. She kept being like this, you know, Stacy, this is getting really dark. Like you have to line it up a little bit. And I think that's good advice. Like we don't, especially now with all the things we hear, like reading about problems with no ways forward is really hard. And and it was important for me to have ways forward and ways forward that were backed up by research. And, you know, in true Machiavelli style, I was like, no matter what the research bears out, I'm going to share it, even if it's advice that I don't feel great about giving or that I wish weren't true. I'm just going to present it so people have options. There's like a little air in the room. And some of the advice was not my favorite. You know, it was like you should smile more in a negotiation to get a better reaction. And I didn't love that, but at least it's a piece of advice. And if, you know, you're really needing to get a job to pay your gas bill, like maybe you smile. (laughs) I thought that was I thought that was fair advice. I mean, it wasn't you should dress a particular way or you should be cloying. It it just didn't present that way. And then I thought that was fantastic. Yes, but but some of the advice, and definitely let me know if there's something you'd love me to go into that you found particularly useful. I'll talk about any of it. So so basically the approach to negotiation, which I really liked and has helped me negotiate better and has taken away some of my own anxiety about negotiation, is, you know, let's say you're earning $50,000 and you find out that your colleague, Ralph, is earning $70,000 and he has the same amount of experience. So you are really mad and you realize you're being underpaid. You kind of want to and frankly have every right to go into the office and say, you know, listen, I know that I'm underpaid. I know what you're paying, Ralph. This is unbelievable to me that this is kind of gender discrimination. You know, we have the same schooling, the same amount of experience. Like you'd better raise my salary. Otherwise, I think we're looking at a gender equity issue here. You have every right to say that, but in the long run, it may not get you what you want, right? Which is sort of a long-term good standing in your office in a collaborative environment and a place where you can grow and thrive. And also, the research shows that women don't do as well in a negotiation if they're in a confrontational environment. People have very negative reactions when women are confrontational, which can put you in a really difficult position as a woman if there is a problem that needs confronting, right? (laughs) So how do you approach this? Yeah, that's Uh, a little awkward. (laughs) It's a little awkward, you know, and and in this case, this is a real issue, right? You're being $20,000 less. This is real money. So you can just try and approach like, hey, you know, listen, I'm really loving working here. I'm really excited. The company's moving in X, Y, and Z direction. I find that so inspiring. I could see myself heading up that project one day. I really see a future for myself here. I really value working here. And I think, you know, I've, I've seen myself grow enormously in my job and in this role. But it is also very important for me to feel as if I'm being properly valued for the work that I'm doing. I know that when you hired me, you took a real chance on me with my, you know, and I really am so grateful to you. And I feel like it's really paid off for the company. And I believe, though, that now the work that I'm doing isn't quite like matching up with the salary that I was initially getting. So I think a salary of probably $80,000 at this point would be more appropriate. And what do you think? And then kind of wait, don't bring up Ralph. But but it's sort of starting a conversation. It's also telling a narrative of, you know, you discovered me, you brought me in. That's wonderful. But now things have changed. Not just like I caught you, but, you know, now I my job has changed. My skills have changed. I think a salary of 
obviously above what you want is more appropriate. And then the what do you think? If you need to start bringing up that you know what other people make, you can do that in sort of a a way that is maybe not as confrontational if possible. You know, you got to say what you got to say and the facts are the facts, but just sort of taking emotion out of it, making it more logical, trying to take confrontation out of it. The chances of success in negotiating as a woman will be much, much higher. Yeah. And I think there was one other thing that you mentioned, which I thought was really critically important to hear, which is a lot of times when you get a no, it's not the final word. And men don't tend to see it this way. And you shouldn't either, nor should you take it personally, nor should you go through feelings of devastation. Oftentimes, no is not right now. Yes, this was a great piece of advice. It was so simple and so smart. It was from this Neha Narkede, who's a unicorn in Silicon Valley, which she's one of the founders of Confluent, which is a multi-billion dollar company. But she worked her way up through LinkedIn for years. She actually grew up in India and was raised there. So she had a little bit of a different perspective on the American tech industry. And she said it was really shocking. She would see at every step more and more women drop out that they just weren't advancing at the same rate. And so she developed this technique, which I love, which she said she would go to ask for a promotion at a point where she felt it was sort of ridiculously early to do so. You know, so she said, I really like to manage my own project. And she would expect to hear no when the person would say, oh, no, you're you're not qualified for that. This is where the brilliance comes in. She'd be like, great. I totally understand what you're saying makes a lot of sense. What would you need to see from me? in order to feel comfortable promoting me to a management position. And she would make them list concrete things. Well, you need this skill. Oh, great. Well, how, how, what would be the best way for me to get that skill? And she said she would make a list and she would do a follow-up email with the list. And then she would go and do all the things on the list. And then she would come back and say, great, let's get my raise. And, you know, she said it, w- it would often be really hard and it would take a while. But she said her, her chances of success were about 80 percent. She would come back and say, I did all the things. She said at that point, if her boss was like hemming and hawing or like, well, this isn't exactly right, she said that's when she knew it was time to go, that there was no hope of advancement at the company. But she said most of the time it worked and you're succeeding on their terms. And then you can say, thank you so much. This was such wonderful guidance, which is true. And that was her way of sort of embracing the no. She wasn't going to ask for something that she was really expected to get. She was asking for something, expecting to hear no in order to get the prescription for what she needed to do to get where she wanted. And I loved that. I love that advice. Yeah, that's brilliant. I do want to talk to you a little bit about communication and women leaders, because I think this is a road fraught with landmines. But recently in the national security space, there has been a public statement by a female CEO, and that would be Kathy Warden, who is the CEO of Northrop Grumman, you know, very lightly, if at all, covered by the United States press. I mean, I think I picked this up in the Financial Times, if that gives you some idea. But she called on Western governments to provide a clear demand signal if the defense industry, those, you know, core 15 companies that can do it all, is going to be needed to provide weapons for a prolonged war in Ukraine. Now, that sounds pretty a reasonable request. But she also indicated that, you know, she was clearly alluding to the fact that if there isn't clear direction here, we could run out of our stockpiles. We're depleting our stockpiles. So I saw little press coverage in the United States about this. Certainly, we've been talking about it here on this podcast and thinking about it in the national security space, but we heard nothing from the Hill crickets. Now, what have Mm. you learned about how women are received that might explain this? We don't have to go into the, well, maybe somebody's doing something and it's just a big secret, but let's talk about the like almost no reaction to this from the press. 
Well, on behalf of the press, no, I'm just kidding. I mean, that's shocking because that is really alarming, right? I mean, it's not like there aren't other threats to our national security that are very evident every day. I mean, look at what happened when Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan. And clearly there are just a lot of tension in the world right now, a lot of geopolitical tension. You know, I think that also the fact, because I cover business and economics, that when economic times get rocky, these things become worse. I feel like these flashpoints get worse. And that is a very alarming statement. It is true that when women say things, they've done some very sort of charming slash alarming studies on this. The retention rate for what women say, particularly actually women of color, much lower. People just don't remember it. And if you are a woman and you have ever been in a meeting, you probably have experienced this in some way, right? Either your remark gets ignored, someone talks over you, and the worst, but this has happened to like everybody, you have an idea, everybody sort of mutters and ignores it. Five minutes later, a guy says the same thing that you said, and everybody thinks it's genius. The he-peat. I think there was a female astronaut who who coined the term he-peating, which I thought was very funny. It'll be interesting to see what happens if a male defense CEO says the same thing. It'll be very interesting. People don't listen to women as authority figures as much. Their words don't have the same impact. One of my favorite things about Machiavelli is he didn't think that highly of human beings. You know, he calls people fickle and everything, which which is part of why I didn't like him when I first read him. But he has this really charming way of handling stuff like that that I have taken a lot of inspiration from, which he's just like, okay, so this is the deal. How do we respond? Because I feel like when things like that happen, I just tend to get so angry and upset and then I'm dealing with the anger and and all of that, you know, it's like, I can't believe you talked over me. I can't believe you gave the idea that I'm fuming and I'm sitting there and I'm fuming and then I make a bunch of passive aggressive remarks and then I'm mad at myself for making passive aggressive remarks and we leave the meeting and I feel terrible and situation and returns I, to the same thing, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. So Machiavelli was always like, well, of course, of course, people do this. People are the worst. Uh, how do you handle it? And I loved that way. He's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is the problem. And instead of dwelling on that, he's like, how do we work with this? The best solution that I found, and I don't think there are probably enough female CEOs of defense contractors to pull this off, but maybe. It was actually an article in The Washington Post about the female members of the Obama administration. And they were quoted anonymously, but I love this technique. It's called amplification. But they were having trouble being heard in the White House. Obviously, stakes are really high, tons of competing ideas, you know, who's going to get funding or policy and all that. So what they did was they would meet before the meeting and say, listen, I'm going to propose this thing. Like, I don't know, that we should move the meeting to 1030. Will you back me up? And so, you know, someone would say, hey, I think we should move the meeting to 1030. Someone, another woman would immediately jump in and say, I think Marsh is absolutely right. A 1030 meeting would be way more efficient. It would help us do X, Y, and Z. And then a third woman would jump in and say, yes, Ellen makes an excellent point. 1030 meeting would be wonderful. And that got them traction. It's just a question of getting your voice repeated. It can be a little harder if you are the only woman in the room, for instance, or if you don't have, you don't know people well enough to have allies or if 
the people who you think should be your allies aren't your allies, then there are sort of different approaches you can take to be heard. But being heard is a big deal. And it sounds like the stakes are pretty high in this situation. Like maybe we need to not run out of weapons. That sounds like a very bad, very bad idea. (laughs) Uh, Many reasons, right? Yes. I mean, I would love to. I'm going to have to reach out to her. I'd love to have her on the podcast. And um, you should. You know, so as we talk about this, one of the things that you always imagine in your mind is that there's a woman who's going to be your mentor in wherever you go, and she's going to help you, you know, rise And yet I have to say, honestly, many women have been very helpful to me in my career, but I have also seen women who were lonely where they were. There weren't too many other women. They were living in a man's world. And it was almost as if I felt that they perceived they were competing for scarce resources. It was almost animalistic and they really did not want to be unseated and they were nervous. Now, you offer a lot of things at the sort of the end of the book. There's a lot of stuff that I noticed that I I, I were completely amazing You've talked about some archetypal personalities. And I have to say, as I was reading these personalities, I could identify two, three, sometimes four people in my life who have been these archetypal personalities. And these are the people who could keep a good woman down, truthfully. Now, I don't want you to give up all of them, but I thought it might be nice to talk about an archetypal Highlander. Yes. Well, just really fast. It's so interesting to me that you brought that up, this chapter, Women in the Dark Arts. I didn't even think I was going to include that chapter. It seemed very much anti the sort of like, come on, let's all we're all in it together message that I wanted. But almost so many women I talked to said to me at the end of interviews, like off the record, are you going to have a chapter about how women aren't sometimes come after other women? It came up so many times. That I started, I was like, well, let's look at the research. I've got to look at the research on this. And lo and behold, there is a phenomenon. It's called the queen bee syndrome. And when you say scarce resources, that is exactly it. That's nail on the head. It tends to be in environments where there aren't very many women and where there's a perception of women who do get to a powerful place that it's like there can be only one. I'm the token. I'm the lady at the top. And there's one chair. So then some younger woman comes in and she's like younger and she costs less money and she hasn't accrued all this vacation and she knows how to use Slack. And you are suddenly in this really scary position. And you're like, I'm not competing against all these people. I'm competing against her because I'm here as a token. And so I broke it down into archetypes, and one of them is the Highlander. So the Highlander is a very dated movie reference, but is this movie, The Highlander, with Christopher Lambert, who is like one of my original movie crushes. He's very cute. But he I haven't seen him on, on Call My Agent yet, I'm assuming. Oh, wait. I have seen Call My Agent. <laughs> yeah, he's changed. It's not Highlander. Is that sexist? I'm just checking. I'm not sure at this point who even knows. But yes, there's a reason I think I have kind of forgotten that part and I've just stuck with it. He's a very handsome older man. But like for me, he will always be the Highlander. But yeah, in the Highlander, it's basically this sort of sci-fi movie, but it's all these people competing for this great prize. They're a little vague about what the prize is. It's sort of like all the knowledge in the universe or something. But he keeps saying there can be only one. All these different men. It's all men. Google algorithm. (laughs) Yes, it could be only one. It's basically a bully. A Highlander is basically a fancy word for a bully. I think this is probably the most common form of anti-sisterhood behavior that women will experience in the office is just bullying from a more senior woman. 
it's really, really hard to deal with. And it can happen, you know, when you're sort of in a vulnerable place or you're just starting out and someone has a much higher position or sort of a key gatekeeper position. You know, I've certainly encountered plenty of Highlanders, and it it'll often happens because people have run a terrible gauntlet themselves. You know, they've had to be so tough or adapt to really hostile environments. And so, I mean, that, obviously, that's an important thing to keep in mind, you know, for compassion and all that. But you still have to deal with this person and getting bullied in meetings and and it's insidious, right? I think you point out it's oh. not always obvious what's happening because it's not the sort of chest pounding bullying situation from the playground. Yes. You know, what do you do? One of the things that can be very, very useful, and this is just sort of a more a classic example. If you're dealing with like a narcissist or something like that, I think it can get much more complicated. So then, which is good. I called a bunch of experts because I was like, I don't know how to deal with these people. What's your advice? But for the Highlander, Sort of the one-on-one, I think, is is very important. So if, if, if someone says something to you in a meeting like, oh, well, you know, you're always talking too much or something like that, it can be good to not say anything in the meeting, but to go to this person afterwards and say, you know, I noticed in the meeting you mentioned that you think I talk too much, uh, obviously. And the other thing is don't trade shots. You can kind of rise above. I'm always a big fan of your ideas in meetings. I think you have excellent ideas. But it seems like you think that I don't or that I talk too much. I'd love to kind of hear what you had to say about that. It sounded like you were kind of making a half remark in the meeting, and I, I'd love to talk about it. Maybe they say something or deny it and just say, OK, well, you know, I hope you know you can always talk to me if you have concerns about what I'm saying in meetings. And I so appreciate your time. Thank you. And it just kind of shuts down a lot of the problems. You're at least making yourself a very uncomfortable target. You're establishing a one-on-one connection. The bully doesn't have that sort of cushion of the crowd. You know, bullies don't like real communication. Real communication and sincerity, that's not really in their wheelhouse. So if you can just go show you're not afraid, don't show emotion, that can be very helpful, at least to start. And then get allies. Allies are very important in these situations. Sound advice, definitely on the allies front. And the other thing is, I think people forget that usually if there's somebody bullying you, they've bullied others. It tends never to be one person. It's it's never. a habit. They do react very strongly to being shamed in public. So taking it somewhere else is always a good idea. But you do describe all these other archetypal characters that I think are worth people reading and they really should pay attention to it. But one of the things that I really loved about the book was pro tips and pitfall alerts. Can you explain what these are? And also, what is the shame situation? Oh, my gosh. So this was in the end. I went back and forth on whether or not I should put like a little negotiating guide in the end. But then I kept thinking, if I were reading this book, I would just want a guide. Like, I just wanted a guide with all the worst case scenarios. So it was really like a little bit of a choose your own adventure with all the worst things happening. And how to react. Because I always felt like, you know, these negotiation books, they'd say, ask for this. And I'm like, oh, yeah, well, if I ask for this, my boss is just going to say that. And there would never be a follow-up. So I was like, no, I need a choose-your-own-adventure. But apparently the choose-your-own-adventure people are very litigious. So I did not use choose-your-own-adventure. But I wanted to include the pitfalls. The pitfalls are just things that can happen during a negotiation. It's kind of like a worst-case scenario. And then the pro tips were like little hints So, for instance, you know, a pitfall would be you say, you know, I really think I deserve this raise and my work is really 
come up in quality, and I think a salary of $80,000 is far more appropriate. And let's say your boss comes back with something like, well, actually, that's funny that you say that because I noticed that your, your productivity seems like it's been down a little bit. Right. So that's a pitfall. This is a it's a sort of a classic move. Right. It's sort of devastating, but it's supposed to take the wind out of your sails. And so a little pro tip there is that you've done your homework. You know what your productivity was. You can counter with like, oh, that's so interesting. I'd love to have a follow up meeting about that. But actually, you know, my earnings have gone up by 20 percent last year over the year before. And I'm the most productive member of my team by far. So I, I would definitely love to talk about why you have this perception and definitely follow up later. But I think back to my pay adjustment, like I said, 20 percent more productive is a lot more productive. And I think that definitely warrants a raise. So it's just kind of the different pitfalls and pro tips because I've I'm a reporter. I love to report and research everything. And so I would go into I would read negotiation books and I'd go into negotiations. And it never was as simple as me just like rolling out the technique and it magically working. There was always a twist. So I wanted to address the twist. And the Shane situation is one of the pro tips. So this comes from yet another dated movie reference, the movie Shane. It's like a Western. In the movie. Well, you are, the, you know, you are from Idaho and you did. I am from Idaho. A ranch of some kind. So that's it. Exactly. I Yes, I did grow up on, on a cattle ranch. But in the end of the movie, Shane, the cowboy, is riding away from this town. He's like leaving. And this little boy's like, Shane, Shane, like crying out across the field. And I always had this fantasy that if I left a job, you know, manager would be like, Stacy, don't go. It hasn't happened yet, but it could. So the Shane situation is what your situation looks like if you leave. This can be a scary thing to think about because if you're going into a negotiation, what is your situation? What situation are you in? Maybe you really need this job. So you're asking for a raise and it's like, yeah, but I I have no leverage because if they say no, I can't really be like, well, then I'll quit. I just have to be like, okay, well, I have to have this job to pay my gas bill. So that can feel really devastating, but actually it's quite empowering. You know what you need. You know what situation you're in. It just helps you negotiate more smartly for you. You might not, quote unquote, win the situation, but you can go in knowing so much about yourself. Well, maybe you do have enough money to quit and maybe you can and that's good to know. Or maybe you know that if you leave, they would be in a terrible situation. That's very interesting. So this is the situation that you're in if you walk away from the job. That's the Shane situation. And it can just really help in negotiations. It puts a floor under you. All the research that I looked at, and I think this is helpful for really anyone in a negotiation, but especially for women uh, for whom negotiation tends to be harder and more fraught, the more facts you have. It just it changes the game in a negotiation. The more facts you have, the more homework you've done, the more you know what you're colleagues and contemporaries make and all that. It's probably the most powerful thing. Um, In fact, thank you for putting in your book suggestions for how to research that, because that can often be a black box. Right. I mean, well, it's like, well, I'd love to know what my colleagues are making, but that's not an easy conversation to have. My best advice, this comes from asking uncomfortable questions about money for a couple of decades. The word range is a magical word. So if I come to you and I say, listen, you know, I'm I'm going in to negotiate for a job. I think I've, I'm a little bit underpaid. I think I found out that I'm I'm underpaid, so and I don't quite know what to ask for. Would you mind? Do you happen to know what the salary range for your position is? This gives the person a cushion. It's much different from me saying. So, do you mind telling me how much you make? Way different. Do you know what the salary range for your position is? 
I mean, you know, and that's actually potentially more helpful situation. And and the other one of my favorite things was that my colleague who is a an economist, so loves data, loves data. She was trying to figure out how much she should be asking for from this job. She kind of couldn't figure it out, so she started she started messaging random, she said white men on LinkedIn who seemed to be in equivalent positions at other companies. And this might have been that these were like other economists who also love data and so they were speaking kind of their common data love language, but she said she had an 80% response rate. And some of the guys would ask their colleagues and deliver more than their salary. I talked to everybody in my department. This is how much everybody earns. People want to help. I mean, if someone reaches out to you and says, you know, I'm just graduating from law school. I have no idea what I should be asking for. Do you have any idea? You know, you're going to want to help. I mean, I know, for instance, people have called me about NPR. I have the union handbook because we're in union and they have like salary bans. So I can give them the salary band. For, for a job, which is hugely helpful and an official job description. Sometimes you can get that from HR. Sometimes HR is kind of ornery. You have to kind of be careful about HR. But you're a lawyer. I don't have to tell you about that. Anyway, so you can, you know, you can get really useful information. And people want to help. Everybody knows how difficult the sort of asymmetric information problem is when you're asking for a salary. You know, the company knows how much everybody makes. And you probably know how much you make and maybe a close one close friend, you know, I, I thought this was a really fantastic book. I love the pro tips. I love the pitfall alerts, but I really <laughs> felt like I felt like guys should be reading this book because I have to say, I do have the privilege of working around a lot of men who actually care about this stuff. It matters to them. They don't want to bring a bias into the workplace. They don't want to treat a woman unfairly. And I think this is probably a pretty good read for them, too. Thank you. I really that was very important to me. And I strongly believe that we all need to be at the table. Like what what we want, I think what the goal is for all of us is just everybody to have a fair shake. It makes the workplace better. I think all of this, you know, crap, discrimination, exclusivity, it weighs things down. It holds us back. Some of the most supportive colleagues and mentors I've had have been men who had no reason to do it just other than that they were really good people who cared about other people and the workplace and things getting better. And I think those allies are really crucial. They're really crucial. We need men at the table with us. We need everybody at the table with us. We do. And you know, the other thing to think about here, and I'm going to try to sound like an economist, but the presence of women and their high earning power has really boosted the U.S. economy. And I think that is not to be underestimated as a force for good for the Commonwealth. It's not just for women. It is good across the board. It improves our quality of life, our standard of living. And frankly, it just makes us better. Oh, yes. And in fact, women, I would argue, are largely underused in the economy. Women are now about half of the workforce, a little over half the workforce. Um, at least that was true before the pandemic. That might have changed. It's good for everyone. It grows the economy. Like a lot of the consumption is done by women in our economy. Sorry, now I'm going in. Now you said economists. Now I've gone into weird jargon. A lot of the buying happens from women in our economy. And the more money those women are earning, the higher they can go, the more innovations and ideas they have that get funded. You know, we've seen what can happen when you when people who have good ideas get a little money. Look at Silicon Valley. Well, the more people whose ideas can be at the table the better the ideas in the end. 
and the more we can all benefit. Absolutely. And I, I do want to say one last thing, and I'll plug this that you noted in your book, that the venture capital dollars that are given oh. to women, it's something in the order of 1%. And I would just say, I think Silicon Valley and the tech industry generally is facing a bit of a crisis right now. We've been sold this mantra that they care about privacy when we all know that we're the product, everything we do, swipe, place we go, all of that is sold to data aggregators. And that has boosted this entire industry. Giving more money to women for some of these startups might bring a fresh model might actually cause a positive and seismic change. And so I think I would like to see that change in particular, I think, again, for the good of the Commonwealth. And also that kind of thing, a fresh perspective can drive us forward. Yeah. I mean, I love this term Commonwealth, right? I mean, this is our economy, our whole country. And the ideas of women, of people of color are just getting no money. And they're good ideas. And they have a different perspective and different experience that will serve different people, you know, that is a huge strength. In this country, our diversity is a lot of our strength. People with different approaches to problems, people with an awareness of different kinds of problems, different ideas. The fact that we support those ideas is completely our superpower as a country. We just need to be bringing a little more people to the table so that the ideas can get better and better. So like you, I have conservative relatives. <laughs> and one of the things oh, yes. I have said oh, to yes. them is I have often said, um, who do you think is going to feed into the social security trough? Who do you think is going to be funding our economy going forward? And the answer is a lot of it's going to be immigrants and a lot of it's going to be women. And so all of this is a good thing. Stacey Vanek-Smith, it has been a pure pleasure to have you on tonight. I admire you for uh, writing this book. I've enjoyed you tremendously on NPR and Planet Money. I look forward to talking to you again in the future with your next book, which I'm sure you're ready to pick up right now. I don't know if you've had a vacation. I've had a, I mean, as much as any of us have had a vacation, <laughs> you know, I haven't actually gone like on a vacation vacation yet, but I do have one planned in September. That's great. Uh, that is really terrific. I want to recommend this book. It's Machiavelli for Women. Defend your worth, grow your ambition, and win the workplace. Author is Stacy Vanek-Smith. Stacy, thanks so much for joining us this evening. It's been a pleasure to have you. Oh, it was so much fun. Thank you for having me. All right. And thank you to our listeners. Uh, we just want to remind you that we don't take your time or your attention for granted. We're going to suggest that you share this episode with a friend. Women, you should sit down and talk about it over coffee. Uh, when you've read Stacy's book, remember that all the national security issues that have sort of come up here, including with respect to the defense industrial base and the CEO of Northrop Grumman, we've condensed that into a book of our own, which is the National Security Law Resource Book, which has now been published for about 20 years. Our most recent iteration is available on the website. Remember that you can reach out to us if you'd like to on Twitter at ABA NatSec, or you can send us an email at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. Our producer is me. Francis Berkham is our editor and co-producer. Rebecca Salido is our program manager. My other co-producer is Holly McMahon, who we're wishing the best right now, along with the amazing leaders, men and women who are on the Standing Committee for Law and National Security. Don't forget that the lawyers on hosting this podcast, which tonight it's just me, are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Hey, listeners. This fall, our committee celebrates its 60th anniversary 
founded in 1962, what is now the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security, was first established as a Committee on Education about Communism. To commemorate our anniversary, we're launching The Past 10 Years, The Next 10 Years, an anthology of national security law. These articles capture the history, growth, and development of the committee, the nation, and the world's evolution in national security law. The articles will be released as a series through our website and will later be compiled into an ebook that can be downloaded or printed as needed. Check out the link in the description for more. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policies.